I started in ministry back in around 1990, one of the larger churches in San Diego uh, in youth ministry, in the high school ministry with one of the, uh, if you want to call it the most successful, most popular uh, youth pastors, high school pastors at that time, uh, Miles McPherson. And if you know Miles, he's the pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego, a church of about 10,000, 12,000 people, one of the larger churches in the country. And, and so I grew up under Miles and uh, kind of progressed, if you want to call it that, through the ranks of youth ministry. And then Miles was called away to another ministry and God opened doors. And next thing I know, I find myself as a high school pastor at one of the larger churches in San Diego um, with one of the larger youth youth groups, high school groups in San Diego. And so we do that for a while, and, and it's interesting that uh, a couple of years later, I found myself through a variety of circumstances uh, in a quite a different uh, scenario. In fact, I found myself a couple of years later with one of these around my ear. But I wasn't speaking at churches. I was sitting in a cubicle, and this was attached to a cord into a receiver box, and I was answering customer service calls at Geico, and I was spending Thanksgiving and Christmas Day there, answering calls from people who felt the need to deal with insurance on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and uh, I got to be honest with you, you know, from one of these up-and-coming High school pastors, largest church, largest youth group, one of the largest in San Diego, connected all around to being tethered to one of these on Thanksgiving and Christmas morning. It was humbling and it was a stretching time for me because I realized that as a believer, I think what happened in my life was that a large part of my identity as a Christian was tied up in my ministry and my serving. And suddenly when that was all stripped away and you're tethered and you're struggling with why you're here and why you're not doing great things for God, you know, God has his way of of speaking to your heart. God has his way of really revealing things to you and your relationship with him that that maybe you were blind to, that that you didn't see and, and... and I, and I think about that in the way that we sometimes do church here, even today, right? We do it so well, right? The lights, you know, the decorations, the kids, nothing wrong with that. I remember as a youth pastor, there were times, you know, where we did youth ministry so well. We'd run games and we'd have music and it was all good, good, good. And I just wondered, and I still wonder today if sometimes we're not inadvertently teaching believers and leading believers to kind of not really understand what it means to live the grace of God in the daily mundane things of life. You see, when I was a young believer and young in ministry, it always had to be up. We had to be up. We had to be doing something for Jesus. We had the, the next program, the next thing, the next thing. And it was always up, 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 right? And let's go, let's, let's go conquer San Diego for Jesus, right? And it always, always like, right? And then I went from down to tethered to a wire. And you're like, now what? 
And sometimes I think in churchdom, we go from Sunday to Sunday, and it's like, yeah, that was a great sermon. Ah, well, music was great. Ah, youth group. Ah, youth group was great. Youth group was great. Youth group was great. And sometimes I wonder if we're just sort of misleading believers, followers of Jesus, that everything about following Jesus has to be up. Ah, we need our next youth group fix. Ah, we need our next Sunday fix. Ah, right? And we always have to outdo each other. Every week has to be bigger and badder. Bigger, badder, better. Bigger, badder, better. Bigger, badder, better. Because we've got to keep you up. We've got to keep Christians up. We've got to have this following Jesus is up. Right? But the crazy thing about that is, how many of you leave here, and right outside that door, life is waiting for you? You have chores. How many of you have chores and responsibilities waiting for you that don't light your fire right now? In fact, you just go, ah, oh, I've got to do, ah. Oh. Right? And, and, and I just wonder that sometimes in church, we, and, I, and I get it, we're enthusiastic and we want to give you the shot, right? Sometimes I think of church, some, how many of you remember Hot Wheels? And Hot Wheels had those two little wheels, right? And it would shoot the car, and then the car slows down, makes it to the wheels, right? Right? If you were rich, you had two sets of wheels, right? Sometimes I think that's what we teach about church. Church, you come here and we zing you back out. And then you barely make it to Sunday. And then we launch you. And you go out for seven days. And you work and family and we're Christmas and zing, right? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what the grace of God is about? Zinging you? Is that really what it means to follow Jesus, is to get zinged? Right? Because if you're there, you're setting yourself up for disillusionment, for discouragement. You're setting yourself up to be seeking experiences for the next thing that's going to fire you up for Jesus. Because the truth is, God's grace is kind of really designed for the mundane, boring things of life. The 24-7, 365 stuff. When he says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. That includes taking out the trash. That includes doing your homework. That includes getting to work on time. It's that stuff. It's that stuff that, that if we can connect grace and godliness to the 24-7, 365, you know, mundane, boring, routine stuff of life, I think you're going to find that you'll mature. You'll actually mature in your faith. Because we can zing you. All I got to do is make a few phone calls and Get a speaker here. It's not that difficult to zing church. Get a guest speaker. We'll zing you. Everyone will get excited. We'll bring in a big name, and for a uh, first quarter, we'll public, we'll put it out the whole valley. We'll fill this place. We'll have to, and we'll just zing you. And then youth group, they'll just zing you. Children's, we'll just zing you. The problem is when you get home, and your your parent asks you to do something you don't want to do. Did you ever connect the grace of God to listening to your parents? Did you ever connect the grace of God to cleaning your room? Washing your car? 
<laughs> right? But we get this, so we, we get going. We just get going, and we want to be zing, 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 zing. And it's like, no, kind of not. Right? In Titus 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Titus 2. And I'm going to read 10 verses to you. I didn't want to put them up on the screens. But just kind of listen to what it says in Titus 2. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Titus regarding various groups of people in the church in Crete. Okay? So this is Paul giving guidance to Titus. Titus 2, 1 through 10. It says, You, however, speaking to Titus, You, Titus, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, right? If you actually went back and you read that, you would probably read that and go, ho-hum, that's pretty basic. I don't see much zinging in there, right? Older men, be temperate, self-controlled, sound in faith. Older women, be reverent in the way you live. Don't be slanderers, don't be addicted to too much wine. Younger women, love your husbands and children. Young men, be self-controlled. Slaves, don't talk back. Don't steal. You're like, okay. Sounds like a list of do's and don'ts. Sounds like we're just supposed to be good moral people. Do-gooders. Is that what this is? Like Titus, he spends ten verses, and if you read that, honestly, you're like, oh, yeah. Pretty basic. Right? Is that what this is? Just We're supposed to be just be good moral people, self-controlled, temperate, just, just be good moral people and don't do some things and do some good things. Is that what this is about? Did God provide everything we need for life and godliness so we could be good moral people? Is that what this is really about? Because what's crazy is that list is pretty routine, pretty basic, right? And then in verse 11 through 15, he shifts gears, man. He just, he, just, he just goes radical in context. So I read that, context, bunch of behaviors, right? Different groups of people. And then look at what he says in verse 11. This will come up on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. He teach, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, he gives these lists that we might just dismiss as a bunch of do's and don'ts and a bunch of good moral behaviors. And then suddenly he shifts gears and he says, hey, the grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Suddenly he goes, hey, you know that list that I just gave you? That's about being godly. And if you and I really want to be godly, we need the grace of God. Amen? See, here's the thing. Christianity isn't about being good and moral. It's about being godly and holy. You've got to understand that. If your faith is just, if your main purpose and you, your understanding of Christianity and being a follower of Jesus is just be a good moral person, you really probably don't need the grace of God. Because quite honestly, there's a lot of people in this valley right now who are good and moral. They just are. How many of you know some really good and moral non-believers? Super honest, super loving, super giving, right? They're good and moral and upright. They don't need the grace of God necessarily. So as followers of Jesus, that list that he gave us is not about being good and moral. It's about being godly. And to be godly requires grace. Requires the grace of God, right? And at Christmas, I love this. Because last week we saw that Paul was motivated by the love of Christ. But really, grace, if we're, you know, in this whole series on grace, it's amazing how God worked it out. Because what is Christmas really about? I love this. Chuck Swindoll says this. Grace is summed up in the name, person, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know grace? You want to appropriate grace in your life? You got to know Jesus. Starting point. It's Jesus. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here's the thing. You and I are going to position ourselves to be recipients of God's grace, to reign, as we saw in Romans. It starts with Jesus. Do you know? Gnosko, experientially, it's, it's knowing Jesus, right? And then, then suddenly Christmas... You read the Christmas story differently when you understand Jesus and grace. Luke 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's grace. The good news that should cause great joy is God's grace has come. God's grace. And it's not just savings grace, right? There's, I've shared with you before, there's three tenses, if you want to call it, of, of salvation. There's salvation from the penalty of sin. There's salvation from the power of sin. And then there's salvation from the presence of sin, the future presence of sin when we get the new bodies and we're in heaven. That's all rooted in grace. That's what Christmas brings. Christmas is all about freedom, salvation, being rescued from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, present tense, 2018, and ultimately the presence of sin. That's what Christmas is about. That's what makes Christmas relevant and practical and not just a good thing for kids. Because Christmas, ultimately, is about God's grace. And God's grace is ultimately about what happens and the choices you and I are going to make when we walk out this door. Because if you purpose in your heart, if you really desire to be godly, you're going to need God's grace the second you get out of your chair. The second you stand up and say, Lord, for the rest of this day, I purpose in my heart, I want to be godly, I want to be holy, I want to honor you. The second you stand up, you better walk in grace because you need it. If you want to be a good moral person the rest of the day, eh, you could probably do it. You could probably do it. But to be godly and holy, Christmas becomes real because grace is real. That's what it's about, right? That's what it's about. It, it, it makes Christmas so much different. And, and what's, a, what, what's, what's interesting is, Eileen, can you put up uh, Titus 2.10 again? Look what he says here. He says, teach slaves, I'm sorry, um, to, I'm sorry, let me go back, 2.11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Hmm, Christmas. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God. You can leave that up. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Moving into 2019 is us. Christmas can take on a whole new significance to me and to you if you understand. Look at the verse. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Christmas. One bookend. Look at the other bookend. Another appearing, the return of Jesus. So between Christmas and when he comes back, the first appearing and then his second appearing, we got stuff to do, amen? And this right here requires grace. That can light you up for 2019. That's where sometimes we're like, how many of you make New Year's resolutions? I gave up making New Year's resolutions, right? You're like, is that in the Bible, New Year's resolutions? No, but I'll tell you what's in the Bible, one appearing to another appearing. If you want a little biblical yearly cycle, go from Christmas. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. Okay, so Christmas, maybe he returns in 2019. Who knows? Are you ready? We don't know. No one knows the time. But from Christmas 
to his next appearing, if you desire to be godly and holy, that requires grace. That requires grace. And I love, now we'll go to Eileen, we'll go to Titus 2, 9 and 10. It says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Leave that up, I. Here's the thing. He makes this real, this first appearing until Jesus comes back, and he, he talked about young women, old women. Now he, gets, he just brings it home when he says slaves. How many of you have ever had a boss you didn't care for? A boss that was demanding, a boss that was unreasonable, a boss that didn't like you, a boss that felt like they could just do whatever they want with your schedule. Anyone? Okay. Now, I'm going to contextualize that. I'm not disrespecting that, and I'm not saying it hasn't been hard on you. But let's look at what he's saying here. Because what he's saying is, hey, slaves that have become Christian. And in this context, slaves were considered less than human. Slave owners, they can kill them. They can sell them. They can torture them. Their very life and existence was nothing. Brutal. Absolutely brutal existence. Just brutal. Never knew if you're going to live the next day. Never knew what the master was going to do. Split your family up, sell you into prostitution, do whatever. He could do whatever he wanted with you. Some slaves became Christians, followers of Jesus. That's who he's talking to. They're still slaves. They're still slaves in every day living under the whim of a non-believing tyrant. That's who he's talking to. And he says, okay, Christians, slaves, who are still living under that horrific condition. Be subject to your masters and everything. Try to please them. Don't talk back to them. Don't steal from them. Show that you can be fully trusted. How many of you say that requires grace? For sure. Right? That's That's a drop you to your knees. I need your grace. Because remember we talked about the prayer of subtraction where we often say, God, take this away. God, take this away. And he's like, why are you praying? Pray for, the, pray for addition. Pray for my grace into your situation. That's what he's doing here. The slaves are still slaves. But he's saying, bring my grace into that. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the absolutely crazy thing. It's not just so that they survive another day. It's not just so that they make another paycheck. There's a purpose. Look at this. I love this. So that in every way, everyone say every. That's every. Like every. And even up top, teach slaves to be subject to the masters in what? Everything. Okay, now picture that boss. In everything? In every way? That's a grace. That's a grace moment. For you and I. That makes Christmas, that makes this grace thing real. Real. Think about that coach. Think about the teacher you don't like. Think about the parent you don't like. Think about the person online you don't care for. Right? So that in every way, 
they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Attractive. He's like, hey, followers of Jesus who are still slaves, you can choose by the grace of God to make the gospel attractive. (laughs) Stunning. Humbling for us, me, who have whined oftentimes and had pity parties about woe is me and how bad my life is. And you just don't understand. And I just got it so bad. I don't know. First century Christian slave probably had it worse. And yet into that, God says, you can honor me. You can glorify me. In fact, I love the word, you can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, if you were with me a couple years ago, we looked at this. That word attractive, in the New King James Version, it says that you can adorn the doctrine of God. You can adorn the doctrine of God. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Right? Adorn. Make it attractive. You know what I love about that word adorn? Christmas. That word adorn is where we get the English word cosmetic. And I would wager a large amount of money that some people in this room put on cosmetics this morning. Why do you put on cosmetics? Okay, Ernie, I'm thankful that you didn't. Thank you for... I heard that. But if you did, that would have been okay, too. What's the point of cosmetics? To look good. To be attractive. Right? Adorn is where we get cosmeo. It's cosmetics. He's saying, hey, Christians... Live in such a way that your life is attractive. Is attractive. In fact, you adorn, in fact, for Christmas, hey Christians, live in such a way that your life is an ornament. Why do you put ornaments on the tree? To make the tree attractive. Right? You decorate it really nice so that when people come over or you wake up in the morning, you're like, That is a good-looking tree. Anyone? You love that, right? Yeah, that's a tree. I love that tree. And then you got pictures of the kids and all the stuff you have, all right? You put it up there. Why do you go to all this effort to make the tree attractive? Think about this. What if the tree is every area of your life? And every area of your life is designed to enhance the gospel, to make it attractive. So there's your marriage. There's your relationship with each of your kids. There's your finances. There's your attitude. There's your thought life. There's your words. There's your stewardship of time and money and resources. Everything in your life is to make the gospel attractive. So that when people see your life, when you're not here, they're like, that looks pretty good. I'm drawn to Jesus. You're a believer? That's pretty cool. Right? I love this quote by A.W. Pink. There are others who give themselves unto the diligent study of doctrine, but generally they fail to realize that the doctrine of Scripture 
is not a series of intellectual propositions, but is the doctrine which is according to godliness. The doctrine or teaching of God's holy word is given not for the instruction of our brains, but for the regulation of all the details of our daily lives. And this in order that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Why are we reading the Bible together? Not so that we can all say, hey, that was pretty cool. Bucket list. No. Ultimately, we are going to read Scripture together. We're going to learn how to read it, why we read it. Ultimately, so that our lives adorn the doctrine of God. That's why we read, that's why we pray, that's why we're committed to church. That's why you do it. You don't just do it for doing its sake. The d- habits of grace, the spiritual disciplines, all serve a greater purpose. What is the greater purpose? Make Jesus attractive in what? Your life. In your life. Right? Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and what? Praise your Father in heaven. There was an article called Drawn to the Light, and it was asking the question, why Muslims convert to Christianity? It says this, Dr. Dudley Woodbury, professor of Islamic studies, aware that throughout the world Muslims have been turning to Christ, was curious about the reasons why, especially in countries where the cost of converting is so high. To find the answer, he created a detailed questionnaire. Over a 16-year period, some 750 Muslims from 30 countries filled it out, and the results are eye-opening. The number one reason Muslim converts listed for their decision to follow Christ was the lifestyle of the Christians among them. The number one reason was the lifestyle of the Christians among them. They were watching. They were watching. They were listening. They wanted to know if you really lived and believed what you say you believe by how you lived. They wanted... Was it attractive? Apparently. The number one reason was that their life was attractive. They're watching. And here's the crazy thing. People are watching you in this valley. People are watching you at your work. They're listening to you at your work, at school, on your sports teams, at home. Your kids are watching, listening. The minute you leave here, you're going to launch out. Wherever you go to lunch, where you're going to do last-minute shopping, they're all watching, they're listening. Here's the crazy thing, too. On Sundays, when people arrive and you guys are talking in here before church begins, people are watching and listening to your conversations even before church. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't even entered the room, and you all are the first impression. By your conversations, by how you treat each other, there's a lot of watching eyes, a lot of visitors here every week now. I haven't even entered the room, so they're watching you at a Christian church. Who are they going to watch? The Christians. Right? Right? 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, you and my life, we're not just called, and we're not just chosen, all this good stuff for me, me, me. There's a higher purpose. We are in Christ. We are citizens of heaven to declare his praise. Amen? To a world and a country that desperately needs answers. Desperately needs answers. I love this quote. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do, by the things you say. Others read that gospel, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Right? Some of you have heard this phrase, you're the only Bible some people ever read. See, in this room represented right here are thousands of people because you come in contact with them throughout the week. We celebrate 150, 130 here. That's all great. Celebrate it. But what 130 represent here in the course of a week are thousands. Thousands. Many of you are out there. You profess to be believers. Well, what's the gospel according to you? Is your life attractive? Are you adorning the doctrine of God when you're not here being zinged by us? Being zinged by us? Because this is, this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Is purposing to adorn the doctrine of God in the mundane, boring, routine stuff of life. Right? Have your purpose to adorn the doctrine. And as I was thinking about this, for me personally, God has put it on my heart, you know what, in 2019, just my own personal where I'm at, this is like a verse for the year. I am purposing, Lord, show me in my life, starting with one area, how I can better adorn the gospel. Show me, Lord, or I personally can do a better job of adorning the doctrine of God. Maybe it's in my marriage. Maybe it's with one of my kids. Maybe it's with all of my kids. Maybe it's in how I use my time. Maybe how I spend my money. Maybe how I react to certain situations. Maybe how I do ministry. I don't know. I'm just kind of like this right now. And I'm like, Lord, I want my life, and I want to be proactive in my life in 2019 to adorn the doctrine. I want my life to be an ornament. And then if you show me one and I work on it, then show me the next one. Just one at a time. What would that do for you? What difference would that make in your life, in your passion, in your purpose? To actually say, Lord, in 2019, I want to adorn the doctrine. I want to adorn the gospel in one area. One. We're not saying you have to walk on water. Just pick one. Because when you pick one, it's going to change everything. Because now you have a reason to read your scripture. Now you have a reason to pray. Now you have a reason to need each other. Now you have a reason for God's grace. Pick one. Purpose in your heart to adorn the doctrine of God. And here's how you might start. Ask God to be honest with you and give you an honest assessment. (laughs) Because we always tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we tend to 
score higher on our scorecards. Anyone? You tend to score higher on your scorecard, by golly. Funny how that works, right? Spend some time, maybe between now and the end of the year, and ask God to give you his honest assessment of where you are. Not to make you feel guilty, not to condemn you. That's, that's not what this is. It's so that you can better adorn the doctrine moving into 2019. And if you're real courageous, ask the person next to you. Uh, honey? Honey? <laughs> honey, is there an area in my life where I could better adorn the gospel? Go ahead and smile at the person next to you because I just I broke the ice. Go ahead. Say, just say, honey, is there anything I could do to adorn the doctrine better at home? Somebody got a list already. Bam! I was waiting for you to ask. It begins with the trash. Without being asked. And here's the crazy thing. It could begin with the trash. Without being asked for an entire year. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Oh, we got dishes. Now we're like, oh, we got an amen for dishes. Dishes? Amen. Putting dirty clothes away? Whoa, okay, now, we're, now it's confession, now it's confession. Do you see? This is the real stuff of life. This is not zinging. This is adorning the gospel where you live, just you and your family. And if you're single, just you. But you're adorning the doctrine of God because He sees everything anyway. You do it as unto Him. Right? But we kind of, over time, we get comfortable we kind of just, oh, yeah, right? Like, how many of you, honestly, there's something that needs to be picked up? And you think, someone should do that. Someone should really do that. How many of you are incredible at balancing the trash when it needs to be taken out, but you know you can get your items on the top? And you walk away really quick. The guilt, the the laughter betrays you, right? 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 All this stuff at home, it's like, why can't I just do that? What does it really take? And here's the crazy thing. I I did this exercise just because I used, uh, you know, I'm really good at, I'm busy. I, I got five kids, a lot of hands, do that. So, I said, okay, Lord, help me with this. What, what does it really take? How much time out of my way does it really take to do something that just needs to be done? Like, really, right? Because we think, oh, I can't do that. I'm so busy. It takes so much effort. I wish somebody would do that. So I literally, for like a month now, I would see something, and I'm like, okay, I'll do it. My children must be praying because no one else wants to do it. <laughs> so I start counting in my head. Thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, thousand four, thousand five, thousand six. I go out and I come back in. I kid you not. Most of the things that I sidestep, ignore, try to, you know, someone else should do, 30 seconds or less. 30 seconds or less. And, I, and, 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 and instead of 30 seconds or less, you're like, in God's grace, I'm getting bent about my kids not doing what they need to do or sidestepping things. Literally, 15 to 30 seconds, I kid you not, I was counting my head. Okay.
okay, I'm going to refill the soap. Why can't anyone refill the soap? Everyone's pounding on the soap to get the last bit, and no one wants to refill the soap. So I'm going to refill the soap. Thousand one, thousand two. Ten seconds to refill the soap. Right? What's the point? The point was, God was convicting me about me ordaining, adorning the doctrine just by doing things that need to be done in His grace, even though I don't feel like it. And then He made it real practical. He said, okay, Mr. Busy Pastor, let's just time how long it would take you. Ten seconds. Ten seconds. After three days of pounding on my soap. It took me ten seconds to refill it. But on those three days, I'm bent at the entire family because it's right there. It's right there. I was pounding on it looking at it. <laughs> like, why can't somebody just do this? I'm busy. Thousand one, thousand. And God's like, you know what? This year, can you just adorn the doctrine? Can you just get over your bad self? Pick one thing. Start with one thing. And make your life an ornament. Make, your life, make, make something in your life that more attractive. Right? That's my heart for us. I, I, I just want us to be a place, honestly, when people come here on Sundays, that the gospel is just attractive. We're not perfect, but we're doing our best to adorn it. Amen? And then when they go to your house, or your co-workers, or your classmates, or your teammates, it's just attractive. Just purpose in your heart. Seek the Lord. Just start with one thing. To adorn the doctrine of God. To make it attractive and see what He does in you and through you by His grace. Amen? Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your grace. And Father, man, so easy to get twisted up in knots and point fingers at others and think of not wanting to take, take care of the mundane, boring things of life and, and we just want to be zinged. We just want to do the next bigger, badder, better thing at church. And, and yet, this morning, I'm reminded, I'm reminded that your grace applies 24-7, 365 and that we have the incredible privilege to adorn the gospel to make Jesus attractive even in our chores, in our homework, in our use of time and money, in changing the soap. We can make Jesus attractive because it's a heart issue and we can do it as unto you. So that's my prayer for us individually and as a church that the gospel would be attractive. And Lord, maybe there's some time right now that we just have to be honest and maybe there are some things that aren't attractive. Maybe honestly, there's some things in our life, our attitude, our words, our habits, social media, relationships, things that aren't attractive. We're honest. So Lord, we just want to spend some time now with you, opening ourselves up to be recipients of your honest assessment. And if we need to confess, then we just need to confess and ask your forgiveness. And come back to your grace. 
your grace, which is sufficient for all things, even the boring, mundane things of life. Your grace is sufficient. So Lord, as we sing this song, speak to our hearts. Show us where we can adorn you. And then remind us and, and bring us to the place of just humbly receiving your grace. Your grace to make the gospel attractive.